0: Welcome to the perfume room. My scent of the day today uh, was something I was recently gifted from Teo Cabanel. It is their new fragrance called Peau Sale, which literally translates to salty skin. And the way they describe it is salty flour and coconut water. So, I have not completely made up my mind about how I feel about this one, but I have to give the disclaimer that this is just like not my particular genre of scents. Like I'm very particular. There are a few scents in this sort of like salty, beachy category that I really enjoy. And I feel like those would be Kirin, Pure New York, just because it's so photorealistic of such a personal memory for me. Mugler Womanity, because it takes me back to college. There's something about it that feels like salty, beachy, but like sexy at the same time. And then Vacation by Vacation Inc. because I just feel like it's so kitschy and campy and fun. Beyond those three, I'm very critical of salty scents. I've tried uh, the new Joe Malone salty amber fragrance. I wasn't a fan. Anyway, what am I doing? I'm beating around the bush. Let's get to post LA. I'm smelling it on my wrist right now. The first thing I wanna say is that the projection and the longevity are amazing. I tried this the other day and I did one spray and I could smell it hours later. It's minerally, it's salty. It feels almost more like powdery floral versus the yellow and white florals that are in here. So the actual notes listed are fleur de sel, coconut water, frangipani, jasmine, driftwood, tonka cream, and mineral notes. It really does feel like a sort of in-between of like womanity and vacation ink because there are those floral notes. Like there is, you can detect a little frangipani and coconut and jasmine, but it really does feel grounded in the salty seawater, like ambergris at the shore type vibe. If you enjoy Sydney rock pool, if you enjoy even wood sage and sea salt, if you like some of these sort of salty minerally scents, I would definitely say give this one a shot. I think for me, it's not redundant to what I have in my collection, but what I have in my collection in this category, I like more. That's all I've got up top for you guys today because I want to get into our episode. It is so interesting. Today, we are joined by Dora Goldsmith. Dora Goldsmith is a PhD researcher of Egyptology at the Freie Universität Berlin, studying the sense of smell in ancient Egypt. And while other senses like sight and sound have been explored in depth, Smell has largely remained uncharted territory until now. Dora employs two methods for her research. One, written evidence, where she incorporates linguistic and anthropological research, which you'll hear much more about in this episode, and two, experimental archaeology, or learning by doing. So not only does Dora study these scents, she reconstructs them and brings them back to life. Her work has been featured at the National Geographic Museum in Washington D.C. and Okayama Orient Museum in Japan. Like I did, you might have heard about Dora through TikTok. She's not actually on that platform, but her Ode to Cleopatra fragrance is, aka, the actual fragrance that Cleopatra wore, which don't worry, of course, we discuss. Dora teaches workshops around the world and sells scent kits so you too can experience the smells of ancient Egypt. Information for that, by the way, is linked in the notes of this episode. This was one of the most interesting conversations I have had yet, and I am so excited for you all to hear it now. Here is Dora. Welcome to the Perfume Room. How are you doing today?
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm doing great. I'm looking forward to this.
0: I am so excited to talk to you about all things Egypt, but before we get into it, I always ask every guest, what fragrance are you currently wearing?
1: I'm not wearing anything.
0: Okay. And do you have any sort of signature scent?
1: Um, Not really. So I stopped wearing fragrances when I started reconstructing ancient Egyptian perfumes. Mm -hmm. And I work a lot with these scents. And they're very strong scents. They're kind of overwhelming. So... I find that when I'm not working with these scents, I wanna have um, a scent-free environment around me. I just stopped wearing these things completely a few years ago. I do wear scented body lotion, Mm
0: -hmm. but I
1: don't wear perfume anymore. It's just too much. Also my nose has become really um, like very close to the nose of a dog almost. Like I can sniff (laughs) out everything. Um, So it's it's just too much.
0: I totally get it. With that said, the third question I ask every guest is, do you have any fragrance controversial opinions?
1: I don't really have any controversial opinions, but um, I will say that since I've uh, started working with ancient Egyptian perfumes, I don't really like modern perfumes anymore.
0: Oh, interesting. So
1: I, yeah, because I work with natural ingredients, Mm -hmm. I cannot really stand synthetic perfumes. So I really can smell the synthetic. And I think maybe that is one of the reasons why I don't wear perfume anymore. So I can only smell natural stuff right now. Mm-hmm. So, because I'm so used to it. Obviously, the Egyptians didn't have any synthetic fragrances. So I'm I'm really very um used to the natural ones. So probably that's the reason why I don't wear any modern perfumes anymore.
0: Interesting. Okay, well, there is so much to cover. I first heard of you via TikTok. I kept getting tagged in a video where someone had ordered your Mendesian sense kit, and they were talking about how you had not only unearthed the original formulas of fragrances from ancient Egypt including specifically Cleopatra's perfume, but that you had successfully recreated them to essentially (laughs) perfection. And of course, I was obviously fascinated, which is when I reached out to you.
1: (laughs) Okay. So first of all, I've not seen that TikTok video that you're referring to, but I did hear that I became some TikTok sensation overnight. So um, regarding my research... I started researching sense in ancient Egyptian culture kind of, um, hmm, it's been maybe 10 years now, so it's been a long time. It was the topic of my master's thesis. I was pursuing a degree in Egyptology in Berlin at the Free University of Berlin, Freie Universität Berlin in German, and I did a term paper about a sense in ancient Egypt. It was in a class called Archaeology of the Senses, and I was Mm -hmm. always interested in the senses and what they could do for us in understanding an ancient culture better because the senses are really great for coming closer to an ancient culture. Mm -hmm. And I saw that there's a lot of research that has been done on sight and hearing and music in ancient Egypt, but there's virtually nothing on sense. And I looked into it and it became a paper. And my um, professor at the Egyptology department heard about it. And he said, oh, well, this ne- needs to be your master's thesis. And I said, mm-hmm. okay. Um, so I did a master's on that. And then both of my supervisors and um, my master's thesis said that, oh, well, this needs to become a PhD. So, and then it became my life in a way. So I've been researching this for a really long time now, and I'm at the end of my dissertation at the moment, meaning that um, I'm writing the thesis chapter by chapter, so it's going to be done soon, I hope, and uh, this is uh, how it came to be.
0: Okay, wow, I love how serendipitous that was, and obviously you are onto something great because everyone kept encouraging you to do more, do more, do more.
1: So it's one of those things where you do research on something that has never been researched before that you don't really know what's going to come. Right. So it can be just one paper because that's enough, or it can become this huge project because there is so much to research and um, it has turned out to be an extremely rich topic Mm -hmm. that has so much to give to the world, so much information And when that happens, the research never stops. So it's just one of those things, as you say, it happened organically. And I think that's beautiful.
0: What is the research? Like what is your process for uncovering the smells of ancient Egypt?
1: I do a word field research. It's also Mm. called semantic field research, which means that you have a semantic field that is related to the same topic and my semantic field is related to scents, um, smells, I have in this field 10 words. Mm-hmm. And all of them have to do something with smells. So all of these are Asian Egyptian words. For example, sechi means scent. Or chenemu, which means fragrance. Idet, which means perfume. Then I have some negative words. For example, chenesh, which means stench or sechenesh, to make um, stink or um, to stink. Um, I have um, words like um, shen, which is also stench, or to smell, sensen. Khenem also means to smell. So all of these words um, are somehow related to smell or the sense of smell in ancient Egyptian language. And I'm looking for these words um, in the ancient documents in whatever language they are. I'm saying whatever language because ancient Egyptian language changed a lot. It existed for 4,000 years. And in those 4,000 years of ancient Egyptian culture, there are a lot of language um, levels or phases, let's say, or different languages, even if, if you so will. So there's the Old Egyptian, Middle Egyptian, New Egyptian, there's the Ptolemaic, um, there are different scripts, there's the hieroglyphics, there's a the hieratic, which is the handwritten, there is the Demotic, um, there's, um, there's Ptolemaic hieroglyphs. So there's all sorts of different scripts and languages, and I'm, I'm just uh, going through all of those texts published or unpublished. Wow. And if I find one of those, um, words that I referred to earlier from my semantic field, if I find one of those words in one of those texts, that means that that text is related to sense somehow, then, um, I translate that text myself. I translate all documents myself and, um, then I evaluate them and see how that is related to, um, ancient Egyptian culture and, um, the olfactory world of the ancient Egyptians. And that is how I, um, I do my research. So it's a language based research, it's a linguistic type of research. And the reason why I'm doing it um, based on the documents is because the written record has the advantage of showing you the ancient perspective. So you can um, look into the way the ancient Egyptians perceived the world through scent themselves, you have an insight into their olfactory world, their olfactory metaphors and expressions and and the way they view everything. Whereas if you just look at the archaeology, you are not going to see the ancient perspective.
0: Interesting. So I'm curious, because as you mentioned, there are so many different types of text and languages and ways of interpreting are you fluent in hieroglyphs or you learn to recognize certain characters like how did you get to this point of being able to translate text
1: <laughs> fluent in hieroglyphics so yeah I don't think anyone's gonna read hieroglyphs like uh, you know it's a newspaper it's um yeah they're also different hieroglyphs so I can read them all um, oh, wow. I was trained to do so so I can read the um, hieroglyphs I can read hieratic and Interestingly, a lot of perfume recipes later on, they uh, are in very complicated hieroglyphs. So they're mm. called Ptolemaic. Ptolemaic is um, Greek Roman period and in Egypt, it's a late period. And at this time the hieroglyphs become very complicated and a lot of perfume recipes and just a lot of texts uh, talking about scents in ancient Egypt there are in Ptolemaic hieroglyphs. And uh, to complicate the matter at this period, Every temple in Egypt has their own hieroglyphs.
0: Ay, ay, ay. That's a lot. So,
1: yeah, that's a lot. So. Things become really very complicated in the late period with all of these texts. Uh, I've learned to read them and I've learned to enjoy them mm-hmm. and to look at it as a challenge. And it's fun. I like it. It's like deciphering a text almost. It's it's very hard to read because one hieroglyph can have like five different readings. So it's, it's not easy in the late period, but it's fine. I think the difficulty makes it fun.
0: Okay. So then through your studies, what has been the most surprising thing that you have learned about how ancient Egyptians used perfume?
1: The most surprising thing to me was that perfume was not just there for its scent, but also for its color and consistency. Mm -hmm. So a perfume was technically um, olfactory and also visual decoration.
0: Didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> well, why would I know that? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. So it's uh, different colors and different um, textures. So basically a perfume in Egypt was mostly a scented and colored lotion. And uh, the color of perfumes in the temples, they went on the cult statue. So they colored the statue of the gods and we know that every single day they were put on the statue it's called the daily temple ritual so every single day the high priest would put on these so-called 10 sacred perfumes in a statue and also every single day they would remove layers of fragrance actually it was many layers because it was 10 perfumes. so imagine that we have a very small little statue and that is anointed with layers of perfume. So it was also for the king as the high priest to be able to receive the divine nature because a scent can also be an emblem of divine presence. So these gods, they manifest themselves through their perfumes and through their scents. It's also believed that these scents come out of them. They sweat perfumes. So by smelling uh, their their perfume, which, which comes out of their body, the king is smelling the divine nature. So gods do not need to be seen necessarily. They don't have to be visually there all the time. They can also be there in scent. Also, it was surprising to me that every part of the body was perfumed. So perfumes were not just for the body, but also for the hair. Based on some text, there was a different scent going on the head different scent going on the body. So depending on what part of your body you're perfuming, you're using different perfumes.
0: So what would be a scent for hair versus for body?
1: Well, um, I believe that kifi was uh, probably a hair incense.
0: Mm-hmm. That's the natural deodorant, right?
1: uh is not really a de- deodorant. It was used to perfume the air, to mask or okay. scents in the air. Um, and in one recipe, it said that women use it to perfume themselves. And based on that, I conclude that it could have been a hair incense or a body incense or both. Ah, okay. um, based on some documents, the goddess Hathor puts uh, different perfumes on her hair. So in one text, uh, she puts lotus, um, lotus oil on her hair. In another text, she puts frankincense on her hair. So I would say that it varies, but um, but hair was clearly scented. Clothing was also clearly scented, the body also. So based on my research, people were walking around in this cloud of scent.
0: Are you there, listeners? It's me, Emma. Do you want to support your favorite fragrance podcast while shopping for your favorite fragrances all at a discount what? Is it too good to be true? No, it's not. And here's how to do it. Use the code perfumeroom10 on any Twisted Lily order to get an additional 10% off. On Lucky Scent orders over $40 for that same 10% off discount, use the code PR10. You get a discount. I get a commission. How sweet it is. Or not, because I don't know if you like gourmands. Let's get back to Dora. So it's very clear then that during this time period, scent was sort of used as a symbol of divinity or high status. Were regular people wearing any sort of scents then, or was it really just reserved for those with status?
1: Based on all the documents that I've looked at, it seems that everyone had access to some sort of perfume, or let's call them scented lotion. And these lotions probably helped them as in... um, preserving their skin, especially um, in the heat of Egypt. So they would also create a protective layer on the skin of people. And also um, it was important in ancient Egypt to smell good and look good. Mm. So um, it belonged into the world of Maat. Ma'at is the world of justice, the world of good, the world of truth, everything that is good that belongs into Ma'at. And the opposite of that is isfet. It's the world of bad, chaos, evil, and stench. Mm -hmm. And you do not want to belong into isfet. You want to belong into Ma'at. So a part of Ma'at was to smell good. There was a great emphasis for everybody to smell good. Um, And it was just a part of hygiene, so, because of that, um, I would say that everyone had access to some sort of perfume. Exactly what, it's hard to say because there are only a handful of recipes for people. Most of the knowledge on perfumes in ancient Egypt comes from the temples, which are perfumes for the gods, right? There are a few examples. So there's, for example, medical kifi, There is a deodorant that I recently reconstructed. There is um, also a face mask that I recently reconstructed. So there is some information about ancient Egyptian cosmetics for the mortal inhabitants of ancient Egypt, but uh, it's limited. Right. Um, now, we do know that everyone received some sort of perfume. And um, we know that because there's a text from Daryl Medina. It's um, a strike papyrus. It's the first documented strike in the world. And the workers uh, in the tombs in Darrell Medina, they say that we're fed up with this. We're not working anymore unless you give us our payment. And the payment consists of fish, bread, vegetables, and perfume. So we do know that Everyone got some sort of perfume. Probably uh, the workers at Daryl Medina did not get the same perfume as the king of Egypt or, you know, as as the queen. So there was a difference in in the status of people. We do know that there was um, one ingredient that was really a sign of high status in society. And there was myrrh. The Egyptians called it Antiu. And myrrh was really an olfactory sign of high status, luxury, and festivities. So with myrrh, you are signalizing that you're high society in a way. But with other ingredients, it's hard to say. I would say that it's logical to assume that um, the higher you were in a hierarchy, the more luxurious ingredients you
0: had. Interesting. Okay, so going back a few steps, you had mentioned this sort of black and white way of operating of sort of good versus bad and how stench was specifically associated with evil, what were the evil smells of Egypt?
1: Oh, that's very easy to answer. Fish.
0: Okay. So they want to be paid in fish and perfume at the same time. Um,
1: yes, there is, um, yeah, there is a controversy there. So here's the thing. So fish was consumed, um, every day. Um, by the way, there were temples where priests uh, could not eat fish. We know that it was because it was considered um, a source of stench. And there were temples where you could not enter if you ever had fished and you were not able to be a priest there. Wow. So, um, so we know that everyday people ate a lot of fish. It also is very clear from the documents that fish was seen as a prototype of stench. Every single time they wrote down the word stink or stench or um, something smells bad or um, anything that's related to stench, then they would classify that with a hieroglyphic sign of a fish.
0: Wow. So when
1: they thought of stench, they always uh, thought of fish right away. That's kind of the prototype in their head. And a lot of... Uh, High officials would go into um, the marshes of the Delta in the north uh, to fish and to fowl. It was a fun sporting activity for them. But at the same time, it was also a symbolic act of killing the enemy and getting rid of everything that stinks and getting rid of evil.
0: It's so crazy how scent really dictated what was good, what was evil, what was divine in that time. And I saw that you've done a lot of research as well on the different functions of scent. Specifically, I saw you had figured out the scent of lovemaking.
1: Okay. Yes, I did. Um, I do have a lot of text um, that I have translated in my database um, that are related to making there are some beautiful love poems from ancient Egypt and they're, they're really very sexy I mean when I first read them I remember I was sitting in the library and all of a sudden I went red
0: um, oh my god <laughs> yeah
1: yeah um they're very sexual so in these beautiful love poems the lovers are always sitting around a pond in a garden where yeah. they're, surrounded by the sense of blossoming flowers and vegetation. They describe different flowers that are so uh, fragrant and they there are around the lovers and create this wonderful setting for lovemaking. And um, I did the research on what kind of flowers grew around the pond in ancient Egypt. And based on that and based on the love poems, I recreated the scent of lovemaking in ancient Egypt, which is actually very romantic. So mm. it was so educational to recreate it because I smelled it. And I said, wow, I can really imagine this setting now. It's very romantic. Yeah. And um, yeah, by the way, the scent also came out red because there were also henna flowers around the pond in Egypt and they colored uh, the entire perfume red. So it's it's all very fitting and really beautiful. It's it's um one of the reasons why I recreate sense because you really can understand the ancient documents better once you do so.
0: Right. Okay, so what then did lovemaking smell like?
1: Very floral. Mm-hmm. Um there was um a lot of lotus around and ponds, obviously the blue lotus, the white lotus, the narcissus, Um jasmine Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: there was a mandragora which smells um, kind of bitter but it really goes well with uh, jasmine and the narcissus we have hannah flowers we have the papyrus we have this wet floral scent which is um yeah very romantic like I say
0: Hmm. Okay, so then of all the scents that you have uncovered and recreated, which one feels the most personal to you? Like which one is the most Dora fragrance of them all?
1: Oh, wow. The most Dora fragrance. (laughs) Um, Well, I don't know how much they're related to me. I try to... Put my own personal liking to the side when I do these fragrances because I am Mm -hmm. interested in historical reconstruction, but I can say which ones are my favorite.
0: Yeah, that's what I want to know.
1: Okay. I really like the medget perfume, which is um, fat-based.
0: It's Mm -hmm. made
1: out of um, oxen fat, which isn't highly perfumed. What? And a lot of people are put off by it because, uh, well, it's fat. Right. And then they, what what perfume and um, beef tallow Mm. and what, like, how does that work? And I just, I just really like that, that it's, um, um, you know, it doesn't care about our modern ideas of what a perfume is or what a perfume isn't. So I just love that. And um, it involves a lot of cooking, like almost all Egyptian perfumes, you have to cook them. And uh, I just love it that the Egyptians don't care about our modern separations of certain worlds. For example, we think that cooking is in a kitchen, perfume making is in a lab. We think that, um, Certain scents are just, uh, or certain flowers or ingredients, if they're just for cooking. Others are just for perfume. Others are just for flowers. Um, this is just for men or just for women. This is to be eaten. This is to be um, worn as a fragrance. The Egyptians do not care about any of those classifications that we have. For them, it's all just one thing. A perfume can be cooked. A perfume can be eaten. Even like kifi was used as a chewing gum. Um, so. So I just, I I really like all of those Egyptian perfumes that make us understand that our boundaries are modern boundaries.
0: Okay, I'm curious, because a lot of these ingredients sound, you know, just like a little bit hard to get a hold of. How would one go about sourcing oxen fat, for example?
1: Yes, um, it involves some research. It's very time consuming. I mean, I try, obviously, you know, the, the easiest first oxen fat. I go into the local... Store and I ask them if they have oxen fed, and they look at me like I'm crazy and laugh and like, no, we don't. So if I see that it's difficult and I go online and I do more and more and more research, and finally I've, you know, I found it somewhere, but it's not always easy. Especially because it's important to me to get my ingredients from authentic places, meaning from the same lands that provided the Egyptians with these ingredients in antiquity. I try to source my ingredients from the same areas when possible, so that is very very time consuming. You have to look. And then um, I also use high quality ingredients. So also you have to test. To give you a few examples, I source my um, myrrh from Somalia. So I know that the Egyptians uh, source their myrrh from there. Cedar um, is another one that's really hard to get because the Egyptians use the Lebanon cedar which is almost gone. I mean, there are like maybe a few hundred examples still in Lebanon, but it's really hard to get. So it's not always possible to get it from authentic regions. When possible, I always do so. But yeah, it's, um, it's um, time consuming to find the providers. And it's also very expensive to do some of these experiments. Right.
0: I can't even imagine. You were talking a lot about what the written record was and how they omitted certain things that they didn't want to talk about and included what it was that they did. And even with recipes, okay, like a little personal example, my great grandmother recorded all of her recipes, but purposely left out one key ingredient from Each one, so that no one could ever perfectly recreate her dishes. This is, you know, if you want to know where my ancestral trauma stems from. (laughs) So, my question is how exacting were the recipes that you found? Like, was anything left out? And if so, what was the reason? Was it intentional or maybe something that was left for oral tradition? Such a good question. No.
1: So, that's one of the reasons why I recreate these recipes um, because. um, if you follow the recipes step-by-step, step, then you realize what's missing. Otherwise, you can't.
0: Mm, okay.
1: Um, so answering your question, no, not everything is there. A lot of information is missing. And what I have learned um, from all of these recipes and from recreating them is that um, there is no one recipe that is 100% complete. Mm-hmm there's always going to be something in a recipe that is missing. Right. Always. So they either don't mention some equipment that you need to have uh, because they think it's clear, I assume. Uh, For example, in in a lot of recipes, they're not saying that you need to sieve the final product, and it's clear that otherwise you wouldn't get the final product. So Mm. you need to... um, uh, use some equipment that is sometimes not there. In other cases, mm-hmm. um, the binder is not noted, and they're saying uh, make one mass or one pallet out of this um, mass that you have. So you have to crush some ingredients, and then you need to stick it together now to make some um, incense pallets. Okay, but how? Like I have a powder. Um, and they're just clearly not mentioning the binder. So maybe they're not mentioning the binder because it was oral tradition. Right. So a part of the recipe could have been oral tradition or it could have been just clear what it is and they did not feel like it's necessary to write it down. That's the one explanation. Um, And I believe that is true in some of the cases. The other explanation would be that they left out some information on purpose. So- um, What I understand from all of these documentations of ancient Egyptian recipes is that they wanted to document these texts on the one hand, they had this desire to immortalize the recipes. On the other hand, these recipes were a big secret.
0: Mm, Interesting.
1: So they did not want to tell us everything. So they immortalized the recipes and they reached that goal, but they did not give us all of the information. So definitely that, um, not everything is going to be in the recipe that you need. That is, is very clear. There are always a lot of open questions after reconstructing a recipe. Sometimes there are more than questions answered, uh, but you do not know what questions are open unless you recreate a recipe. So you know what is not answered only by doing it. It's just not clear. These recipes, um, uh, it's not clear otherwise because these recipes are written in a really complicated manner. The language is also very complicated. They're very long. And I believe that they're written in such a complicated manner on purpose.
0: And how do you actually go about doing it? Like, do you work alongside any sort of like chemist or perfumer? Is it mainly trial and error? Do you consider yourself a perfumer at this point?
1: Yeah. In the beginning, um, when I started many years ago, I reached out to some perfumers to compare ancient Egyptian perfumery with modern perfumery and see how it's different. And I learned a lot from them. So I always like to talk to experts. Um, but uh, by the way, not just in perfume. So I have a lot of other different texts. Um, For example, um, when I was researching the temple scents, um, which involve a lot of food smells, and I reached out to a cook. Right. So I always reach out to the main expert in a field. And when I was researching the perfumes, obviously, I did reach out to olfactory artists. I reached out to um, perfumers and the natural perfumers. And yeah, sure. I mean, I asked them questions when I have some um now i think i reach a point where i'm pretty familiar with uh perfume ingredients and what they can do but you know there can always be some questions so if i do i've made some great friends in perfumery and i and know who to go to i know who to ask i do not consider myself as a perfumer um i consider myself an Egyptologist who likes to experiment. But I mean, it depends how you look at it. You could also say, I am the main perfumer because um, the ancient Egyptians were the best perfumers in antiquity, and they were the first perfumers. So depends how you look at it, I guess.
0: Okay, I'm gonna ask you a question that probably no one has asked you, but listen, okay, I've seen the mummy. I know people talk about how certain elements of ancient Egypt are not meant to be discovered or disturbed, if you catch my drift. Have you had any moments in your research where you've questioned, like, am I meant to be discovering this? Or I guess, like, how do you research or investigate something without... um, Getting cursed? Like, is there (laughs) in the scientific community, is there any merit to this fear?
1: I totally believe in the curse of the mummy. I totally believe in that. Yes, uh, I try to be respectful when I. Sniff around mummies, for example.
0: Mm -hmm. Because you've done mummification since as well, right?
1: Yes, I studied that as well. And uh, I do try to be respectful. Mm -hmm. And uh, by the way, uh, there are some texts that I have translated that are wishes for the netherworld. The deceased individual has a text um, written on their statue or a stele or the wall of their grave or whatever and they're asking for certain things in afterlife including scents so some of them Mm. want to smell um flowers some of them want to smell perfume frankincense they have these very specific wishes for scents in um afterlife and um when i do research on that i always read that out loud at home because uh the egyptians believed that um by saying these prayers, it comes back to life. Wow, it materializes, so that's why I try to I try to help them with their wishes, and um, yeah, no, I totally believe in a curse of the mummy, yeah, for <laughs> sure, for sure. By the way, I think that um by putting these mummies in museums and together with their Um, tomb equipment um, and um, everything they had in their tomb, I believe that we're helping them reach their goal because their goal was eternal life. Mm -hmm. And by putting them out there, saying their names, reading their text, um, their um, wish is um, actually fulfilled. Right. Um, They're they still alive. We're talking about them. So that's what they wish for eternal life. So I would be, I would be perfectly fine with being mummified and put in a museum.
0: Okay. It's on record. So now we all know your wishes someday.
1: I would be perfectly fine about that. Look at me <laughs> in the museum, talk about me, say my name. I'm totally fine with it.
0: What is the smell of mummification?
1: Oh, that is actually one of my favorites. I love everything that relates to mummies, uh, bones, dead bodies. I guess I am a true archaeologist in spirit. I love tombs, everything that just has to do with afterlife. Mm. So the um, smell of mummification is surprisingly very fresh because it involves a lot of resins The Egyptians used a lot of myrrh, cedar resin, pine resin to preserve the body and also kill all the microorganisms growing on a corpse. So that's what resins do also in nature. If the tree is wounded, then the resin comes out to seal that wound and also um, not to let insects inside and any sort of bacteria um, So um, the Egyptians were very much aware of that. And they first dry the body completely, and then they would soak the entire body in hot liquid resin. And that resin would preserve the body and also kill all the microorganisms and make it smell good. Then they would put um, fragrant berries um and herbs um on the body while the resin was still hot so you would find juniper berries on the skin of mummies you can also find sometimes um um, garlic interestingly and um, onion rings mm. you can also find leaves of um, narcissus or lotus sometimes stuck on the skin of mummies and um the abdomen was cleaned, so all the internal organs were removed, and they put fragrant substances inside that would also fill the body, so like they're also a little puffy, um, and also they're filling, and they're also scented. For example, um, sawdust of conifers, or lichen, or powdered myrrh, things like that, or um, just even a linen bandages soaked in some sort of resin, so they would fill the um, abdominal cavity with that. And the mummy bandages were fixated with hot uh, gumi arabicum so that it wouldn't move. Then uh, they would pour hot um, resin again on the body, which was made out of uh, mastics mostly. Um, So there were all of these um, ingredients on mummified bodies that made them smell really very good. And the scent of um, mummification that I have recreated is actually very similar to mummies um, when they're mummified with the correct methods and with the best ingredients. So obviously not every um, corpse in ancient Egypt was mummified with uh, the best methods or different methods of uh, mummification and the higher off you were in the hierarchy the better ingredients you got and the better methods um, you were treated with but um, those mummies that I smell they're really involved with the best technology by the way that one was exhibited once in a museum in Japan that's the ancient Egyptian mummy
0: oh wow very cool So it's really interesting because you have uncovered so many different aspects and functions of ancient Egyptian life through scent, from lovemaking to fertility to mummification, deodorant, medicinal purposes, gum. And you were talking about how certain things were just not written about. And I'm curious, what are some smells or scents that you have not been able to uncover?
1: Well, the one thing that was clearly not mentioned in the written documents, is stench of everyday life, for example, trash um, or horse manure or just um, the stench of animals. Um, there must have been there, but no one talks about them in the documents that did not belong into the world of Ma'at. Those scents must have been there, we know, based on the archaeology. They only talk about stinks when it serves a purpose, when it serves a purpose of um, getting rid of the enemy. And uh, then again, that is related to Ma'at somehow, because um, you are fighting the enemy, you are fighting stench in order to create a pleasant environment um, with pleasant scents. And when it doesn't serve that purpose, they don't talk about those everyday stenches.
0: Hmm, Interesting. So it's like, you know, it existed. It's just not really documented.
1: Exactly. They don't talk about it.
0: Okay. Well, something that has been well-documented is your success around discovering and then recreating the actual fragrance that Cleopatra wore, which you call Eau de Cleopatra. So tell us, what did Cleopatra smell like?
1: Well, based on the documents, we know that Cleopatra was fond of perfumes and cosmetics. And the perfume that you're referring to is the Mendesian. That's how it's called in the ancient Egyptian documents or the Egyptian. um, That's another name of it. So this is a scent that the Greek and Latin sources refer to quite a lot. And they mentioned that it's something that everyone wanted to have in the ancient world. So Egypt was this mecca of perfumery. It was the center of perfume making in the ancient world, and everyone wanted to have a perfume from ancient Egypt. And in late antiquity, one of the most famous ones was the Mendesian perfume. It smells of myrrh. It's basically a myrrh perfume. It has some balanus oil um, in it, which is probably moringa oil. Uh, the uh, Greek document's call it um, balanus. And um, the moringa oil was heated. Some pine resin was put in it. And um, basically, um, um, the Greek sources view the pine um, as a uh, fixative. So they don't really look at it as a perfume ingredient, even though the Egyptians clearly use the pine resin as a perfume ingredient. And um, then they put some myrrh in it that they heat it. And then it says in a recipe that if you want to, you can put some cinnamon cassia to it at the very end. Hmm. So that's kind of an extra. You don't necessarily have to do it. So it's basically a myrrh perfume. I think it creates a wonderful harmony with the, pine resin and the cinnamon with it. It's a very spicy kind of perfume. And um, it's soothing somehow.
0: Mm -hmm. It's interesting because myrrh and pine and cinnamon are all fragrance notes that are still very popular today. I guess I'm just like, I'm so curious if there are any modern day fragrances that incidentally smell like this fragrance. Would you say that do Cleopatra smells modern? Um I don't
1: uh think it smells modern to me at all but I'm also taking into consideration that it's an oil based perfume which you need to anoint on your body to so to me everything plays a part here it's the consistency the base the smell I cannot just like look at the smell only and consider that um you also have this oily consistency that's so something that you would spray on your body, right, like a modern perfume so so because of that it doesn 't remind me of anything modern. It's a great anointing oil, by the way. Some people have been uh buying my perfumes and um um a lady just bought this uh Mendesian anointing oil for me and she found a new use. She started putting it on her hair. She says that it has a great anti-freeze effect. Who knew? So um, yes, yeah, some some people have been um you know uh using these ancient products for totally different uh purposes they come up with with new uh new functions i love that
0: that's really cool thinking about modern day fragrances one aspect that's really crucial is the packaging and the presentation and people often collect certain fragrances just because the bottles are so beautiful and they display so nicely was the presentation at all important in regards to ancient egyptian fragrances
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. The bottle was very important. And the kind of bottle that you got also said something about your status. Um, So the low social strata had pottery, perfume vessels, and um, then those who could afford it used alabaster which is Egyptian travertine. So the alabaster vessels were more expensive and they're actually great as perfume ingredients because they have a cooling effect. So um, in the heat of Egypt, that was important. Um, Yeah, we can see in the tomb of high officials that they have usually alabaster vessels. Tutankhamun, for example, also had a bunch of perfume vessels made out of alabaster in his tomb. And... um, And in the temples, um, gold and silver vessels were also used um, for keeping these perfumes.
0: Well, in just talking to you in this conversation, it's so clear how passionate and personally connected you are to your work. And this idea that you've been able to recreate something that existed thousands of years ago and it's tangible, does it make you feel like you've bridged the gap of time or in some way connect with the ancient Egyptians on a personal level?
1: Oh yeah, definitely. Um, It's um, a privilege to me being able to recreate these scents, and it's a whole lot of fun. I'm really enjoying it. It's also um, a great research tool for me. That is why I started recreating these scents just to understand the documents better. But then I noticed that these recreations are also a great teaching tool. So I've been bringing them to workshops and classes and conferences and everyone loves them. And yes, it um, does give you an access to ancient Egypt from a completely different perspective. It's, It's unlike all the other senses. I believe that is because the sense of smell is a chemical sense so it goes right into your brain it's not something that you could keep away from your body and um, you naturally react to it whatever reaction you have you might have um, a negative reaction or a positive reaction but you are going to react to it somehow um so there is an emotional reaction um there is also the just the the, um, the chemical aspect of it that it goes right into your body it's it's um physical sense. And, um, it's different from everything else we've known before because ancient Egypt was very visual until now. So we know ancient Egypt visually, but, um, it's kind of a sterile, um, environment that might be colorful but it's still sterile we're not smelling anything right when we walk into a museum um, so also if we open a book it's just going to be there black and white or colorful pictures but pictures not more than that so that's what we're used to we're so focused on the visual so um by recreating these scents um, I'm giving an access uh, to researchers and a greater public to experience ancient egypt like Never before. It's a different experience and it brings you closer to ancient Egypt.
0: It's so interesting because you are creating this tactile experience, right? And as someone who goes to the Met often, it's my favorite museum, and Egypt is my favorite exhibit within the museum. I mean, it's definitely more immersive than other exhibits and you can go inside the Temple of Dender, but it's still very much like, you know, look, don't touch, be careful. And you're creating something that people can play with and touch and wear and ultimately experience and be a part of. And I just, I just think it's incredible.
1: Oh, thank you. Actually, some people um have been using my scents um during their museum visits. That was so um, Yeah, yeah. So I have these kits that people purchase and then I, t- I tell them to go to a museum with it. Take it with you. And I do that. Yeah. When you see a mummy, take up my mummy scent and smell it. And when you see a festival. Um on Estela being represented, take up my scent of festivals. Wow. Um, or when you see something re- relates to gardens, um, then take out uh the garden fragrance that are recreated. So some people have been doing it actually. And also I had this one lady in my classes who purchased my temple kit and she went to the temple of Etfu, I believe, uh, with the bottles and That's visited so cool. it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I'm creating these scents too of uh, for people to experience ancient Egypt um you know in different wow. way, if that is uh during my class or in the museum or um or actually at the site it doesn't matter take it wherever you can um I've been even um using these scents um in performances um I was invited a few months back in Berlin to be a part of a theater show and I cooked an ancient Egyptian perfume in front of the audience. It was a little bit different than my regular classes where I explain um how a recipe works and how it can be recreated um Here, I did not actually um have the recipe there i just I just made the thing with all the ingredients and people just uh looked at me while doing it and had this olfactory experience in a theater so um it was a theater show, so you can use this uh, scent um. Recreations for a whole lot of things. A few weeks ago, I um, had a workshop at a conference that was dedicated solely to the sense of smell. There are all sorts of experts um, from different fields. And um, what unified us is that we all do research in the sense of smell. There are biologists, chemists, doctors, psychologists, Egyptologists, of course. <laughs> and I did a workshop there where I showed the ancient use of these perfumes so I um, put on um, the perfumes and some statues I I had like some um, ancient Egyptian statues and I anointed them with my recreations of ancient perfumes like it would have been done in the temple in a daily temple ritual I also showed the kifi I sensed the room and my hair Um, I had a deodorant with me that I recreated recently Um, some people from the audience tried it out and I sniff their armpits. Um, nice. So, um, so you could also um, show these ancient scents in their ancient use in action. That's also very powerful.
0: That's amazing. Okay. Well, this conversation has been absolutely enlightening and has opened my eyes and my nose to the smells of ancient Egypt. And for the last part of our conversation, I thought it would be fun to talk less about Egypt and more about you. And how you use an experience scent. Okay. In a segment that is called, What's That Smell? And it is Rapid Fire Scent Association. Mmm, what's that smell? Are you ready to play, What's That Smell? Yeah. Okay, Dora, what is the smell of your strongest personal scent memory?
1: So my strongest uh, scent memory is definitely with my grandmother. She loved lilac. Lilac. and lilacs. Every time it was blossoming, she had some on her table in a vase, Mm -hmm. and I just have very fun memories of going to my grandmother's place every Sunday as a child and smelling lilac at her table. It was so her. And, um, every time I, um, walk through a garden with lilac when it's blossoming here in Berlin, I think of my grandmother and somehow unknowingly, um, I look around, I was like, why did I think of my grandmother now? And I look around like, what what triggered me? And then I noticed, oh, it's so lilac. Mm-hmm. So, and right away she's there, you know? Right. It's very strong olfactory memory. Really, very strong.
0: Beautiful. What is the smell of your childhood home?
1: Um, hmm, probably chicken soup. <laughs> my mom cooked a lot of chicken soup. She's very good at that. Yeah, probably that. I really loved her chicken soup and I asked her to make it all the time.
0: Oh, that's so nice. Okay. What is the smell of Berlin?
1: Oh, probably, um, hmm, kebab, chicken kebab. You can smell that at every corner.
0: Wow. Love that. Okay, Dora, what is the smell of love?
1: The smell of love? Uh, probably Narcissus. I am just, uh, influenced by the Egyptians, probably.
0: What is the smell of the first fragrance you ever wore?
1: Oh, Oh, I'm trying to remember. Wow, I can't remember the name, but I know that there is one fragrance that I wore for many years that I felt like that was really me, and that is Womanity.
0: Love Womanity. I literally have that fragrance sitting on my dresser. That is what I wore in college.
1: Oh, really? Yeah, I used that for many years.
0: Okay, Dora, final question What is the smell of Dora Goldsmith?
1: Oh, wow. Probably kifi.
0: What does kifi smell like for everyone listening, and also me because I have no idea.
1: A kifi smells really woody. A friend of mine said that this smells like a forest when she smelled it. Mm. Kifi has basically it's it's a perfume library. So kifi has all the perfume ingredients the ancient Egyptians had mm. and used in other perfumes. It's all in a kifi, and it's very complex. It has like sixteen ingredients. So it's very strong. And because that is the first perfume I recreated, I would say that is my smell.
0: That is so nice. Yeah. I know people listening are going to be so interested in potentially taking a workshop with you or buying one of your kits. So where can listeners learn more about that or potentially purchase?
1: The best would be to go to my academia page Uh, If they Google me, they're going to find my academia page. And And I
0: will link it in the notes of this podcast too. So if you are listening, it is in the description.
1: Yes, that would be great. And then that has a little icon for email. And then they can just um, email me. And uh, I do a lot of workshops online. I announce them through my newsletter. So um, they can also add me on Instagram.
0: Amazing. What's your Instagram handle?
1: It's professor underscore Dora. That's my Instagram name.
0: Dora, thank you so much. It has been absolutely mind blowing to talk to you. And I so appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Emma. Perfume Room is edited by Wyatt Peak. Music is by Max Vernon and illustrations are by Israel Rodriguez.